Hey everyone, my name is Patrick Brown. Welcome to another episode of Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Have government restrictions on worship during the COVID-19 pandemic gone a little too far? How can we know if such restrictions are reasonable and just? In this episode, we seek answers to these questions in the work of the great medieval doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas. To help us unpackage Aquinas' teachings on the law, what constitutes a just law, and how we can apply this knowledge in our current coronavirus context, we're joined by Dr. Mary Catherine Summers, Professor Emerita of Philosophy and past director of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. One quick housekeeping note, Dr. Summers and I have a long-standing personal connection, as we disclosed at the beginning of the show. But hey, it's our socially distanced podcast party, and we'll invite who we want to. Enjoy the show, and thanks for tuning in. two swords. And the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant at God's first. Welcome, everyone. We are delighted to have Dr. Mary Catherine Summers with us today. Dr. Summers, thank you so much for joining the show. Well, thank you for having me, and congratulations on your new series. Well, thank you very much for the kind wishes. That's greatly appreciated. We are very excited to get this program off the ground. Before we begin this episode, there's just one housekeeping item I was going to mention. We're going to head all of those full disclosure purists off at the pass, I'm going to acknowledge from the outset that Dr. Summers and I go way back. I've had the privilege of calling her Aunt Mary Catherine for these many years. But we're going to stick with the title of doctor for today, especially with our discussion topic being one of the great doctors of the church, namely St. Thomas Aquinas. Dr. Summers, we're delighted to have the benefit of your expertise as we try to apply a Thomistic lens to subject matter that is a preoccupation for so many Catholics and Christians and people of faith today. And that's, of course, the many restrictions and limitations that have been imposed on religious services and the ability to worship during this coronavirus pandemic. So to kick things off, uh, perhaps you can give us a bit of context on Aquinas's general understanding of the proper responsibilities and purview for religious authorities and for civil authorities. Certainly. I'm glad that you use the term authority rather than power, which people throw around rather carelessly. Uh, after all, power is a neutral thing. It can be exercised for good or for bad, whereas authority, if valid, requires our our attention and perhaps um, our obedience as well. And we have this distinction between civil authority and church authority or religious authority precisely because human beings have two ends, two goals, two teloi, if we used the original Greek, uh, Greek word. And one of them is obviously takes place in the sacrum from which we get this notion of, of the secular. 
And one of them, of course, is union with God, uh, which is not something which can happen, at least not uh, on any kind of uh, continuous basis uh, in the seculum. Both the church and what we can call for you know, the purposes of discussion, the state, although that's a very modern term, not one which Thomas Aquinas would have used, both of them have their authority from being what Aristotle first uh, mentioned, complete or perfect societies, okay? The family, for all of its importance and its uh, undoubted authority and, and jurisdiction, is not a perfect society because it cannot provide for all of the needs of its members. Uh, this is an argument which you hear in Greek texts uh, on the need for the polis because there are needs which the family cannot supply. And so when we talk about perfect, we're not talking about uh, some moral category, but rather this notion of completeness that the polis can completely provide for the, you know, the needs of people insofar as they are citizens and that the church can provide for salvation, which is its reason for its existence. The medieval historian Brian Tierney uh, is famous for his thesis that Christianity, in fact, is the reason for our notion of a limited power to government, all right? whether we're talking about empires or nations or, or city-states, but that because Christianity you know, is based on this notion that human beings have a destiny or a telos which is beyond the cyclum, therefore government authority has to be limited because otherwise uh, it could interfere with or, or even prevent the fulfillment of this uh, uh, sort of a higher end which human life has. I suppose that's sort of background. Uh, we have to figure out that the that the language that we use to discuss matters of church and state is in fact enlightenment language, which in some ways presumes the you know the the fact that the state is basic, that the secular is basic, and that somehow the religious has to fit in. But I think as tyranny has demonstrated, and Thomas Aquinas certainly holds the fact that the human being cannot be completely happy or completely uh, fulfilled without a directedness towards this further end means that the authority of the state has to be limited so as not to interfere with that. So in Aquinas's framework, there are clear limitations on the authority of the polis. Acknowledging these limitations, what is Aquinas's view when it comes to what does appropriately fall within the purview of the polis, and for what purposes the polis can promulgate laws? Well, Thomas's uh, theory of law is quite famous, and it is quite distinct from, say, St. Augustine, who didn't give too much truck with the uh, city of God and its, I mean, the city of man and its progress, or its, its laws, whereas Aquinas shows that there is a real basis in law for human man-made laws. Um, his definition of law is a kind of classic four causes definition. You know, law is an ordinance of reason. It's for the common good. And it is promulgated or made public by one who has the proper authority. 
And so we find that laws cannot be made uh, on the basis of passion, that they are not, in a certain sense, statements of fact. They are commands. They're, or, you know, they're ordinances. And also that you have to have the right authority in order to be able to make those laws, and they have to be for the common good. And this is this is a real issue with respect to the new restrictions. Are they for the common good, or are they for just somebody's, you know, uh, good? All law for Aquinas. Uh, is based in what he calls eternal law. And another name for eternal law is simply providence. It is God's rule over his creation in its return to him. So it's a dynamic idea. Uh, it's not some set of laws, uh, even though, of course, some of them can be written down on stone tablets and handed over to, you know, to people who need that sort of thing. But nevertheless, eternal law is uh, is this dynamic process of returning creation uh, to its creator. Natural law, uh, which is the province only of human beings, and that's, you know, because sometimes we talk about the laws of nature. That's not what natural law is. It has nothing to do with, you know, gravity or, you know, any anything of the sort. Only rational creatures can participate in the natural law, which is, natural law is nothing really, but their participation in the eternal law of God. And they do so because, of course, they have a spark of the divine in them, which is their reason. And of course, uh, as, uh, you know, the Psalms so sort of trenchantly say, God has left man in the hand of his own counsel. Uh, we have to be providential for ourselves and others through the use of our reason, and we have to make uh, choices based upon, you know, the kind of uh, reflection that we do on our being and our, our responsibilities. So human law obviously needs to be based on natural law, even though quite clearly not everything in human law is going to have some sort of direct derivation from natural law. It's quite clear that, you know, if you have car traffic and, uh, you know, that the civil authorities need to, you know, regulate it in some ways, but you're not going to find in natural law some natural speed limit, okay? Uh, that's something that has to be determined by human reason. Other things, uh, you know, for example, our requirement uh, not to harm or injure our neighbors and not to uh, take their property, these things uh, can be directly derived from the uh, the natural law, which again is simply human beings through their reason tying in to God's providence and to exercise it as they have the right and authority to do so, you know, on their own. So as long as human laws are in fact compatible, at least with natural law, then they are authentic. In fact, it's it's an obligation for human societies to make particular determinations, you know, about the here and now matters. Uh, which obviously, you know, natural law, whose first principle is do good and avoid evil, uh, doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't get you all the way. You're going to have to use your own reason to get there. All right. I'm oversimplifying, uh, but it sounds like we have a pyramid. At the top is the eternal law from which is derived the natural law from which is derived human law. With that understanding, what does Aquinas further articulate 
in relation to criteria or characteristics that human law needs to possess in order for us to have confidence that it is indeed compatible with the natural law? Well, human law is going to have to uh, not violate any of the the facets of the definition of law, which uh, I talked about before. In other words, if the law is not for the common good, and of course Aquinas goes on to talk about what tyrants are. Tyrants simply uh, legislate uh, for their own good, or you know, for the for the good of their uh, good of their friends. One hears Thrasymachus in the first book of the Republic, you know, saying much the same thing. If you have power, then you should make things good for you know for yourself and. Uh, your friends, but all law has to be uh, for the common good, or it is not really law. Also, it can exceed the authority, and this is a you know of the lawgiver, as we said. Um, you know, Tierney makes the case that that Christianity uh, has shown us very clearly what the limits of, in fact, civil law are. And all you have to do is read the letters of Ambrose to various bishops, you know, or various emperors, uh, telling them when they get out of line. Okay, this was unheard of in the Roman Empire, but Ambrose knew he had to do it because there are limits to, uh, in fact, civil authority. Uh, the other thing is that that sometimes uh, laws can be unfair. Laws are supposed to distribute the burdens of our common life, you know, the benefits and the burdens of our common life, in you know, in a fair way. And if there is an unfair distribution of these benefits and burdens, then you are going to have uh, an unjust law. I remember in Aquinas' famous theory of a just war, one of the criteria he employed in relation to declaring war or engaging in war was that that action had to be undertaken by what he called a competent authority. Is that likewise a fundamental criterion for human law under Aquinas' framework? Yes, you have to have uh, the right authority. I mean, you know, in the United States, we're constantly, I'm sure this is true in Canada too, we're arguing about what belongs to the federal government, what belongs to the, otherwise to the state and local governments. Uh, you mentioned being in Texas before. Yes, we have uh, arguments about the, the COVID restrictions between the governor and the, uh, you know, the local county authorities. Sometimes the cor- courts have to decide who in fact has jurisdiction in these you know, in these particular cases. And of course, with the fact with the war, Aquinas is trying to prevent this notion that just anybody can start a war. Certainly, it's it's possible for uh, individuals to act in self-defense. And in fact, one is never supposed to start a war. A confident authority is supposed to start a war unless it is primarily um, a defensive war. Again, that's one of the things that Aquinas wa- wants to stop. I mean, when can you when can you storm the Bastille? I mean, you know, this is this is a big question. When can you throw the tea in the harbor? These are are, are reasonable questions uh, to to be asked because at that point, you know, laws are being broken. Authorities or claimed authorities, purported authorities, are being you know are being ignored. That certainly can happen, according to Aquinas. You know, you can reasonably break the law. It's not for no reason that Martin Luther King in the letter from the Birmingham jail quotes Aquinas. This is part of the basis for Catholic social teaching on the principle of subsidiarity, correct? Right. Yes, you're completely correct. Okay. So we have that basic understanding of the the pyramids of law, along with necessary criteria and attributes for human law. 
if we turn our attention then to laws and restrictions that have been adopted during the time of COVID-19, my question would be, where do we start? Uh, if we look at a state like Texas and the restrictions adopted in that jurisdiction, how can we begin to determine whether those laws fit within Aquinas's formula? Well, let me say it's, uh, you know, different countries with different traditions start in different places. And I'm not saying those are all equally correct because I wouldn't think so. I mean, there's a there's a really good um, essay, which your readers might be interested in, in the online publication, Public Discourse, uh, written by Pierre Menent, who is a Catholic political philosopher and, you know, and not only writes books, but is right on the sort of current events. And, you know, he says, you know, let's look at it from the, the point of view of, you know, a government like his own, where laicite or the, you know, the sort of neutrality towards all religious creeds uh, and confessions is is a given. And he says, you know, they, they, they say, well, you know, businesses are, are adapting. They're working virtually. Um, why can't worshipers just worship virtually? And uh, in fact, one heard a lot of this in a number of states. You know, and in Texas, we were doing it in my archdiocese, for example. We did it for a couple of months, I think, at the, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic. But then, you know, and it wasn't much of a question in Texas. I mean, it's a very religious state, uh, not, you know, more Catholic than, it, than by any means it used to be, but still uh, full of practicing Protestants and, and also um, other religions besides Christianity as well. So why can't you just practice virtually? You know, we just heard this over and over again. You know, Minette is simply going to say uh, it doesn't work that way with the Catholic Church because, you know, our assembly needs to be real precisely because of the uh, the presence of Christ, body and blood in the Eucharist. So don't tell us we can do it online. I mean, I heard a lot of, you know, very traditional Catholics saying that when uh, communion on the tongue was banned, that they weren't going to get communion at all, because after all, we could do a spiritual communion. Well, then you might as well say we can worship virtually. All right. Mm. Because uh, the real communion, you know, the real practice of the Catholic Church is to uh, to be assembled in person and to consume the body and blood of Christ. So, Again, as I said in, in, in Texas, this isn't a big issue. Now that's a that's a cultural thing, but we rely, I mean, you look at, you know, France says in their um, you know, they, they have a uh, a charter of religious liberties that you know, no one should be disturbed or or bothered on account of their opinions, even their religious ones. I mean, that's kind of okay, even the religious ones. I know that, you know, as long as it doesn't it doesn't disturb the world, it doesn't trouble the public order. I know Canada has uh, a charter, and interestingly enough, uh, it doesn't just name religion as one other, um, you know, one other protection. It comes first, as far as I remember, conscience and freedom of religion. And then you get to the U.S. Bill of Rights, which is the most firm placement of the freedom of practice of religion. Uh, I think of certainly of those three, you know, three countries, the uh Congress can make no law concerning the establishment of religion or restricting the, you know, the, the free exercise thereof. This is, in fact, where it belongs. 
because historically and theoretically both freedom of religion is the the right if you like that grounds all other rights and so you know nothing in the end uh should you know prevent the the free exercise of religion and this is i say historically i mean you know all the first john locke's letter on tolerance uh, what kind of tolerance are we supposed to practice well he, you know, religious tolerance, because this is, in fact, at the heart of the issue and all other rights. I mean, if the right of free exercise of religion disappears, all the rest of them are going to go too. I mean, I just think that's true. Okay. Piggybacking upon your comments just now about the preeminence of freedom of religion, do you think then there's a stronger case to be made that restrictions on attendance at mass or participation in religious services during this time of coronavirus are indeed less compatible or not compatible with Aquinas's framework for human law, as opposed to restrictions on other freedoms like freedom of mobility or assembly. No law can obligate us to do something which no person should ever do. I mean, no law can obligate us to rape or theft or, you know, or uh, harming, harming the innocent. But Sometimes, you know, we can find that uh, laws which are not, you know, they're not obligating us to do something we should never do. In other words, they're not commanding breaches of, say, of, of the Ten Commandments, because, you know, Aquinas says very clearly, these would be more like violences than laws. Okay, and that's, that's pretty strong language, you know, any, any law like that. But there might, with other laws, there might be exceptions, and I'll talk about those in just a minute, but you ha we have to ask ourselves, where does the law to, to worship God belong? Certainly to tell us to, you know, to stay home for a couple of weeks, you know, is not going to be on a, uh, on a par with asking us to, you know, to commit rape or theft or some, you know, or some kind of uh, act such as that. However, the obligation to worship God is pretty clear and you know, as Manette mentions, the way in which different communities understand that what God has told them to do in terms of worship uh, is certainly going to change their attitude towards what restrictions on religious worship, uh, you know, might be might be given. And so we can't we can't say because it isn't rape or theft that somehow it's not up there as one of the big ones. You know, to worship God, obviously it is. The first commandment states the presence of God and the need to worship him in contradistinction to putting our, our worship somewhere else. And of course, keeping holy the Sabbath is, you know, again, up high there on, uh, on the list. So while one might say the Vikings are coming, so what you'd better do is hunker down and wait for them to pass through so that we don't we don't have a horrible situation which destroys our common life. You know, the Vikings leave. The tendency of, you know, restrictions on worship seem to be hanging around. And no virus is like a Viking. <laughs> Vikings have time limits. Uh, they have to go home at a certain point. But, you know, viruses don't have to. They find ways to stick around. They, they find ways to uh, mutate. And so we have to ask ourselves, uh, it's not like hunkering down waiting for the Vikings to pass. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of this endless thing. It doesn't have a horizon. 
And the idea of asking believers to accept that, to accept a limitless horizon on their ability to gather together and worship seems outrageous. And I would say more violence than law. All right. Hearing all of that, immediately your thoughts turn to the question, okay, so as faithful citizens, what do we do? And I can't help but think this is where the principles of obedience and disobedience come into play. What does Aquinas have to say in that regard? Right. It's interesting that in the definition of law which Aquinas gives, there is no notion of coercion. On the other hand, he thinks that there is coercion. He introduces it down the line, you know, that the law needs to be coercive precisely because of the fall. Okay. Um, Most people don't need a law against murder, not to murder, but some do. So the law does have coercive power. So when can you disregard an obligation? Well, again, the obligation can never be where a law asks you to do something which is obviously wrong. The law doesn't obligate you uh, when it, in fact, is a law in violation of some aspect of the definition of law. You exceed proper authority, you're not looking at the common good, but your own good, or the burdens are distributed unfairly, you know, with these, uh, you know, with these restricted laws. So you've got to distinguish between wearing a mask, which, uh, you know, in Texas is not a popular thing, but most people do it. On the other hand, there's a large proportion of people who think it doesn't matter, and it may or it may not matter. You know, I don't have the medical expertise to say where it does, but the point is it doesn't hurt me to wear a mask. If it makes other people feel comfortable, if it makes them able to resume the common life, you know, going to the grocery store, going to church, um, if we have to suspend communion on the tongue for a while in order to make feel, people feel comfortable going to the Eucharist, well, fine. If we have to have confession in a, in a different locale than we used to, sitting way across the room from our confessor face to face, well, these are reasonable things to ask somebody to do. We skip every other pew. The church gets, we don't do the kiss of peace. The church gets cleaned between every iteration. If we're over the capacity, which the state allows us to have, then people, you know, go into the, you know, the community buildings and listen to it online and just come in for communion. All these things are quite reasonable. They may be irritating. Um, Who knows whether they're necessary or not, but one would be causing scandal or causing disorder by disobeying these, even though there might not be you know, a clear obligation to uh, to follow those laws. But the point is, there's a greater good there. There's the coming together of people uh, to worship and in other ways. And if that's all it takes, okay, limiting capacities, social distancing, wearing the mask, certainly regarding the state laws on capacity for, for buildings, when those are reasonable. I mean, the Supreme Court in, just ruled that the, that the ones in California were unreasonable. Okay, you can't just shut the churches, nor can you say that a vast cathedral can only have 10 people in it. That's ridiculous. There's nothing, you know, reasonable about that. You know, Manette mentions how surprised Catholics were who had begun to complain individually, individual voices, about the closure of the churches in France. How surprised they were when the government said, yeah, you know, that's really unreasonable. You know, it's in our uh, Constitution. We don't want people to not be able to express their opinions. 
uh, which they that what they consider religious practice to be. So Catholics have been rather passive on this for the most part. And uh, one might say there's no need to be passive on this. We have every right to alert the government when they are in fact exceeding their authority. And, you know, the California situation was completely ridiculous. It was true in New York as well. The Supreme Court in the United States ruled on the appeal made by the Brooklyn Diocese. Uh, have reasonable capacities based on the size of the church. But no, you can't close them down or ask everybody to go to church in the parking lot. You know, this may work in Los Angeles most of the year, but it doesn't work in New York. Um, it's surely not going to work in Toronto. You know, there are plenty of other places where it becomes very uncomfortable to go to church outdoors. I just want to make sure I'm clear about Aquinas' teaching on obedience and disobedience. You've mentioned the need for reasonableness in human law. Are there any other markers or guide points that Aquinas highlights when it comes to knowing when and whether to obey or disobey? Right. Well, we don't have any direct obligation to obey the law not to come together to worship, um, except, as I said, you know, when the Vikings are coming or we're talking about a, a short period of time. But we might have, you know, what John Finnis calls some kind of collateral obligation not to cause disorder or not to cause scandal. Those are those have to be prudential considerations when we're deciding what to do. But the idea that we can't petition the government, that we cannot, you know, make our dissatisfaction known. I mean, and our bishops should be doing it. Uh, the bishops, some places have been active on that and other places they've been rather supine. But then, you know, unfortunately, bishops in the 21st century <laughs> are not known for their moral bravery. They're, uh, they're human too. <laughs> they are human too. But um, yeah, so we have to make prudential decisions about what to do. But we should recognize what that we are we are damaging our common life, not just as as Christians, but we're damaging the common life of the polis when we allow civil authorities to so exceed their their proper sphere, and to uh, to tell people that you know well you have to meet each other online. It's a lesser case. Let's put it this way: the family, the idea that the family cannot gather, is also terrible imposition, not quite to meet the the terribleness of not being able to worship together. But I know so many, you know, who are in my own situation of being grandparents who haven't seen their grandchildren in almost a year. This is not helpful in terms of making the family unit strong, which, uh, in fact, no political community is ever going to be strong without strong families. I'm glad you just brought up the theme of making prudential decisions. I don't think there's a way to grapple with this subject matter and ideas around obedience and disobedience and not talk about the virtue of prudence. Because I'll be honest, I'm listening to you. I'm sure some of our listeners are hearing you and thinking, yeah, where I live, you take the criteria that Aquinas has laid out for human law, you apply them to the restrictions that have been put in place and trying to make a dispassionate objective assessment we arrive at a result where it seems fairly clear that our government has gone too far and has done violence to our obligations to worship. From there, one might think, okay, based on Aquinas' framework, I think I have a leg to stand on when it comes to disobeying. And that's arguably where prudence comes in 
and needs to be factored into the process. Perhaps you can tell us then what Aquinas has to say about prudence and how we can apply that to the here and now. Prudence is precisely a here and now virtue. And prudence shouldn't be interpreted as we sometimes use it today as being caution. It has nothing to do with caution. It has to do with judging which means we should choose to accomplish our ends and how that works out in the circumstances which I am confronting here and now. So it's the exercise of practical reason. And the exercise of practical reason for Aquinas, interestingly, he uses very often, as a matter of fact, more often than any other term he uses, the term concilium, uh, in other words, a taking counsel. And he doesn't use very often the term deliberation, which seems to, to be a kind of private in the quiet of my room, loneliness of my soul kind of word. But concilium, which means that I, I need to listen to appropriate voices I need to take vertical concilium, which means I have to listen, you know, to God. I have to listen to, you know, those, the voices uh, which are traditional and scriptural and certainly those I find in prayer. But I also have to listen or take concilium horizontally with my community. And this is not something, because it's a, it's a violence against a community, a perfect and complete community, which is the church whose duty it is to provide us salvation, to direct us to the end of union with God, it is as a community that we need to take counsel and to take steps that are going to reopen the churches, but also, much more importantly, to reestablish the right that all believers have, we're talking here in particular about Christians and Catholics, to worship God as God has commanded them to do. It's not simply getting us back in church, but it is pointing out that barring us from church is a real evil, and it's damaging to the family, you know, to the uh, political community, and it reverses all of the progress which we have made. I talk in here, you know, in terms of Western civilization, worldwide Christianity, in recognizing the human person as something not totally subject to the state. I mean, this, is, this has been the teaching of Christianity. It has been the, the work of the early Christian fathers. I mentioned, you know, Ambrose, uh, Gregory the Great, and it has, it has been a tradition of reflection and prayer and practice that uh, made possible the Enlightenment for all of its sins as well. But, um, and what are we going to do? Just throw this away? Uh, are we to say not only to Ambrose, but also to John Locke and, and all the work that he did on toleration? Not so. The state has the final say in what we can do and, and where we can go, even if this involves our eternal salvation. I, I think that's a great segue into what will have to be our final question. Thomas Aquinas is one of the great doctors of the church. Faithful citizens, they want to follow the doctor's prescriptions, and they're struggling with what to do in the face of the various restrictions that have been put in place in our current coronavirus context. What does the good doctor prescribe for us, 
and how can we look to the teachings of Aquinas for comfort and confidence that, that our consciences can be clear if we follow a certain course of action? Well, don't look forward to exoneration of your conscience. Most things that we do in this messy world are going to have aspects to them that we're never quite happy with. The idea that, that we need to petition the church, that we need to galvanize our religious leaders into doing something, and that in fact, in the end, we're just going to have to gather and worship wherever that might be possible. And the idea that our, that our priests and our bishops would allow the doors of the churches to be barred is, it's a scandal. And we need to, you know, to want them not to participate and not to affirm this, uh, this scandal. And so we're doing something good for them when we, we press them in this particular way. And we need to do it together. If you look at Archbishop Cordelioni in San Francisco, he's been having masses outside and putting a good deal of pressure on the civil authorities. Now the Supreme Court has said, yes, you're right, you know, to do that. But uh, if we don't articulate the truth and do it publicly, then we're failing our political community. Dr. Summers, thank you so much for joining us today. I imagine many of our listeners have derived a great degree of encouragement and insight from everything you've shared. Uh, if we have some listeners who want to go right to the source to learn more about what Aquinas has to say on law and the justness of law, where can they go? Well, you want to look at the Summa of Theology, the first part of the second part, which is Aquinas says in his, in his introduction to it is about human freedom. The first part is about the freedom of God to create. The second one, the freedom of human beings to return to God and look at the questions on law beginning at question 90. It's nice and clear. And there are, all, you know, there are, you know, supplements to, to that. But reading Aquinas in his own words and thinking about them is, is pretty darn good. I, I also mentioned, because it's so topical, the, the article by Pierre Menent in Public Discourse, uh, which simply talks about, you know, why it is that Catholics need to worship together, really, and not just virtually. That's wonderful. I'm confident many of our listeners will appreciate those resources and will benefit immensely from them. Uh, once again, Dr. Summers, Auntie. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, and we hope to chat with you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Crown and Crozier. If you haven't already done so, please head over to your favorite podcast player and hit subscribe. Also, we'd love for you to give us a rating. This helps us reach more listeners. If you enjoyed the episode, perhaps you consider supporting us with a donation. You can visit our website, crownandcrozier.com, and just click the little heart or the link in the show notes. Looking forward to having you with us again soon as we continue to explore all things church, state, and faithful citizenship.